I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Okay, pack your gear. We're going on a trip. And we're going with Elliot Allman, a true explorer. Climbing mountains, surfing in the Pacific, diving deep into the odorous pit known as the Olympic Mix Zone. Elliot will take us there and will guide us to other spots in his adventurous career. A willingness to go anywhere for a story made Elliot one of the nation's best investigative sports writers. He's also a kind soul, someone who makes you feel better just being around him. Someone you like to go on a trip with and hear his stories. So let's go. Hey, Elliot, I know you've been up in the mountains hiking. No need to wipe off your feet. Just come on in. Welcome. Okay, thanks. I'm uh, pretty dusty right now. (laughs) That's fine. There's a lot of (laughs) dusty characters who have come through this uh, den of decadence. So you're (laughs) more than welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm really excited about this because this has to be the first time on our show that we've had a guest who can actually surf. A surfer. We have a surfer, a lifelong surfer. Tell us about this, Elliot. Well, I don't even know where to begin, but it's in my blood. I'm I'm an author of a book on surfing, an instructional book. But um, it's just been a big part of my life. I love nature, and uh, it just is. uh, It's just something that uh, has allowed me. I think as a as a as a sports writer has allowed me to view people in a sort of a different plane, if you will. There's something about the water that balances us all out. And um, I mean, you, to think back that I, um, I took Todd Marinovich surfing. That's right. Um, That's right. For, for, you know, to do a, a magazine profile on him. And, and then, um, I mean, boy, there's so much there. I caught him on a, uh, a bad, uh, I believe, uh, he was out partying all night with his drugs and stuff. But heck, he got up um, and uh, combed his hair, and um, we went out. and And then he just wasn't doing well. And I realized I was dominating the waves, and so I had to give him some waves for my story. Right? That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I grew up in Kentucky. We were not surfing in Kentucky. <laughs> There was a guy on the beach in San Clemente who liked to take walks in his wingtips, and his name is Richard Nixon. And uh, I don't know if we've had any Richard Nixon talk on this show that's based on sports writing, but you have a little bit of a history with Richard Nixon, of all people. How did that come about? Well, the first the first time, um, there's two stories here, Todd. And uh, the first time... Uh, I was with a photographer by the name of Darius Jeanette at the LA Times. Mm-hmm. We were, uh, back then, uh, there weren't very many skate parks like there is in everybody's neighborhood. So I was doing a story on a renowned uh, Orange County skater by the name of Sketch Hitchcock, um, a Hall of Famer, an innovator. And the only place to take photos was in Oceanside, North San Diego County. And uh, we were driving him down there, and uh, Darris, this was the second anniversary of Nixon leaving the White House, and Darris said, hey guys, um, I'm going to put the scanner on. So we kept hearing the word Mr. Pete's, and we thought, 
oh, some kind of code? There's some <laughs> kind of code going on. So Darius gets on Highway 1. We call it PCH, Pacific Coast Highway. Right. And he's heading toward downtown San Clemente. And I look up and I see Mr. Pete's. It's a hamburger stand. And we turn around and we go in and there's all the black cars. And we realize, I don't know what Dick was thinking. Richard Dixon, I mean. Um, well, you know, Dick, okay. All right. Yeah, Dick to me. <laughs> anyway, he... He decided to play golf at a public links on his second anniversary of him leaving the White House. So we 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 go we head over over to the over to the golf course, um, and uh, the the Secret Service knew Darius. They, everybody hated him, and they knew who he was. Nixon knew who he was. They saw oh, I us. Bet he knew. Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, so they they saw us, and then the guy was at the 18th hole. And apparently Nixon was getting ready to tee off at the 18th. He called up and they called back down and they, they told us no photos, no interviews, no nothing. Well, we're listening on the scanner. So we hear them say, okay, take them to the sixth hole. I'm, I'm making up the sixth hole, but mm-hmm. in other words, take them around. Let's get, uh, get rid of these guys. I had a map of the golf course and we thought we saw we could drive up and meet them. So we drive up, uh, way up, it's a, it's a hilly course, and we drive up, park. We tell Sketch Hitchcock, the skateboarder, stay in the car. <laughs> so what does he do? He does not stay in the car. Of course he's not. So, His name's Sketch. <laughs> yeah, he's so excited. So he runs out and follows us. And the upshot of the story, Todd, is we got a picture that ran worldwide. I guess AP picked it up, but all we got was a photo and it's a golf cart with Nixon riding shotgun, a secret service guy driving it. And then a secret service agent hanging on the back, pointing a gun at us. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah. Second time, second time in my career, I had a, a, a law authority point a gun at me for something. So the next year, one year later, I uh, this is like a week. So it's mid-August now. So it's a week uh, after Nixon had resigned. So it's not on the same day. But um, unbelievably, Darius Jeanette's wife had the same obstetrician as Julie Nixon Eisenhower. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is this is interesting. <laughs> so then, so I'm just a I'm just a I'm an intern doing Metro, and the city editor came over and says, "You've got your you've got your surfer clothes in the car, right?" I said, "Always." He goes, "Go put them on." Darius Darius's wife just called to say her appointment was canceled because the doctor has to deliver Julia Julia Nixon Eisenhower's baby. So you and Darius are going down to find that. <laughs> so um, so we, we head down to uh, San Clemente General Hospital. So I run up and this blonde woman, um, it had to be Diane Sawyer because she was Nixon's secretary back then That's taking right. care of stuff. And she, and she looks at me and says, what are you doing here? And I said, I said, well, my, uh, I was skateboarding with my brother and he broke his leg. <laughs> and I, so I brought him here. And she said, you, ha- you got to go somewhere else. Uh, the president's having his first grandchild. Confirmed. There you there, go. There. Confirmation. 
So boom. <laughs> so I go back to Darius. I tell him, yeah, it's happening. And plus, you could see all the black um, Secret Service cars there anyway. Mm-hmm. So we go around the front. Park, we go in, Darius has got his camera, but everybody, they, the Secret Service knows Darius. So we go in, and there's this little door with one of those old-fashioned windows, little uh, mm-hmm. rectangular windows. You can see in, and you can see Nixon, or Dick, <laughs> as I like to call him. They're right there, having delivering the baby. Um, so two Secret Service guys come out, and they, um, they say to me, oh, they say to us, um, Nixon's, okay, Guys, Nixon's having the, his, Julie's having the baby. You guys have to leave. And we're like, no, we don't. And then the one guy gets nasty and he says, I'm ordering you as a, a secret service, as me, an agent of the federal government. I'm ordering you out of the hospital. I turned to Darius. You have to understand, I'm just a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I turned to Darius and I said, Darius, when did San Clemente General Hospital become a federal building? Wow. And, oh my God, that guy, that guy, put his hand in my face and went, F you. I don't want to use a bad word, but he used a bad word. <laughs> so we're at a standoff. And just then he, he comes out the door. Dick, Miss President Nixon. He comes out the door and says, guys, I've got this. And they said, <laughs> Mr. President, can you get, can you please take them outside? And, and then, and then Nixon turns to us and says, follow me, guys. So we, we go out in front of the hospital. And remember, this is before Frost Nixon. Right. He, he hasn't talked. He hasn't right. talked in public. Now he's got this young surfer dude hanging with him. Yeah. But Nixon's talking to me. And he's really close. And Darius Jeanette is standing behind me. And mm-hmm. he whispered, keeps whispering in my ear, step back. So I step back so, so he can get the photo. Right, right. And then as soon as I step back, Nixon steps in. He just wants to have this intimate conversation. <laughs> and you realize that I'm writing this on my notepad as fast as I can and trying to think what to ask. Um, and, then, uh, and then David Eisenhower comes out. He's the grandson of Dwight Eisenhower. He's right. the new father. And so now we have pictures of him that are really good because he's still wearing all the hospital gear and... Um, we get both of them together and then he goes away and then Dick still wants to talk. And suddenly this black limousine comes around the corner. The More win- guns. The, the window, the window rolls down really slow and it's Pat. And she said, his wife, his wife, she says, Dick, let's go. We got to go. Time's up. And I've, he's been out there with us almost an hour. And he turns, he turns to her and says, just, just a little more. And he, <laughs> he, he was lonely. Yeah. So, I thought he hated the press. Wait a minute. Right. Well, I wasn't Hunter S. Thompson, but you're right. I, here's a surfer. It's just a kid, so he feels like he can say, manipulate, you know. Anyway, right. um, so, I'll, so it, went, it went on. I did the best I could with it. So now, you, get, you get the Nixon story. Now, we have not had a surfer, and I don't think we've had a guest who got the Nixon story. So you already won a prize for uh, two first, Elliot. All right. <laughs> two gold medals. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nixon knew about investigations, and, and so do you, Elliot. But you know them from the role of investigator. The LA Times, San Jose Mercury News. Seattle Times, you were at the forefront of a lot of sports investigations that 
that really made waves, won awards, you know, the Balco scandal, uh, different stories about drugs and sports, concussions, University of Washington football. There's one particular story I wanted to ask you about because I have kind of a personal interest in it, and that's involving Hank Gathers, uh, the Loyola Marymount basketball player who died in March of 1990. Um, you were part of a team of reporters at the LA Times that covered the aftermath of Hank's death. When you think about that 30 years later, uh, what do you think about Gathers and that story and how it came about? I, I love the way you framed the question, Todd, because um, nobody's ever really asked me it that way. Uh, I had to get to know a dead person. I'd never met Hank or never covered him or anything, but in that aftermath, which I might add, I had just been at a sports investigative news conference at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. I flew mm-hmm. home that Sunday. He collapsed that evening in the playoff game. I got the call, and I mean, immediately that night, I had to start writing medical stories about this. But when I think back 30 years later, it's like, God, he just seemed like such an interesting person. And I wish I had known him. I feel like I do know him through friends, family, and everything else. But that, for me, that was the biggest, that's the biggest thing I think about with Hank. And you had a team of reporters, right, that pretty much hold up into a hotel, kind of like, once again with Nixon, kind of like the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, that's a, it's a funny story. So um, John Sherva, we had just started the I team, and John Sherva, which I think many of the many of the listeners would know, is a great editor at the LA Times, Orlando Sentinel, Chicago Tribune. Um, he was our editor, and we just had formed a sports investigative team with the incredibly great Danny Robbins and mm-hmm. Mary Marianne Hudson, and right. so we had never. We were just learning on the spot, you know, to like work together, um, what strengths people have. And we ended up breaking it down where I I was doing medical, Danny was doing almost everything, and Mary, Mary Ann was doing the family. She covered the funeral, et cetera. But right. um, Bill Dwyer, the sports editor, um, decided that we needed to do a step back special section in a narrative format. And uh, so the way we did that was John Sherva lived in a, a, he's a single guy living in a big house in Diamond Bar, California. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had Danny, Mary, Marianne and I um, move in for a week. And we just worked around the clock uh, doing the re- what reporting we still needed to do, which was a lot. And it was like the Pentagon Papers in that hotel. We were there a week, and the the poor beat reporter for the um, Loyola Marymount team, he was the one guy that covered Hank and knew Hank, Alan Drews. Well, we realized that he probably hadn't told us all the information that we needed, so he had to drive out one day and have three reporters and this great editor. Uh, I wouldn't say browbeating him, but trying to force him to remember every little thing. I mean, like he was starting to tell us stuff about, oh yeah, they carried a defibrillator on the with the team bus. They did what? We're just learning about this now. <laughs> it was right. things like that that came out. And um, anyway, that was that was quite an experience. And the the final product, uh, I think, really holds up. It was really well done. Sherva and Bill Dwyer both edited it, and um, 
each of us wrote sections and they made it all work together. So that was, well, that was amazing. I'm such a pack rat that I actually have a physical copy of that, of that publication that you guys put together, that special section. I still have it. And the reason is, is I had a small story about Hank Gathers a couple months prior to his death. They had played in Cincinnati against Xavier University. Mm-hmm. And I was a young reporter, and I got a tip that, that defibrillator that they carried everywhere with them, they forgot to bring it to the game that night. And there was no, there was no ambulance at the, at the arena, the old Cincinnati Gardens. And uh, Chip Schaefer, I think, was, was his name, the, the trainer. Yes. Uh, they, they just forgot the defibrillator, left it at the hotel. And so I ended up getting this story, and, I, and uh, it became like one of the first stories as a young reporter where I felt like I got a little attention from the editors, like, hey, this is actually, you know, <laughs> this is more than what we've been getting from them. So, so I always felt like, you know, Hank's tragic death um, had this weird uh, connection with my own career as a young reporter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the defibrillator because I think about that quite often um, when we get to anniversaries about Hank's death. And, and um, it's just still a story that resonates with me. So I have a question for you. I realize that you're the interviewer here, but seriously, where were you when we needed you? That's, oh, yeah. that's, I, was, I was probably at a bar in Cincinnati. Oh my God, we, that, that would have that would have been part of the narrative for sure. That yeah, was that, what yeah. a great anecdote. Yeah, it's you know it's, it's funny. Some of those stories just just stick with you. Those little anecdotal things all these years later. Well, you did so many great investigations throughout your career, and you really got your first break as a young reporter writing about drugs in track and field you know, in the lead up to the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Um, and I know in that throughout that process, uh, you met a, a famous track athlete by the name of Edwin Moses, who became an important, important person in your career, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Edwin, a two-time gold medalist in the uh, 400 meters for the United States? Yeah, 400 meters. 400 meter hurdles, yes. I should say. Yeah. Um, well, Edwin, Edwin lived in Orange County, and I was big. I knew who he was, of course. I loved track and field. And he would train alone. He didn't have coaches or anything. So I would go out to Saddleback College where he was training, and he'd go, like, who is this reporter who's, like, not stalking him, but, like, cares enough to be out there? So mm-hmm. um, I wrote profiles on him and kept up with what he was doing, and he... He really appreciated, Todd, that um, I would take the time and care enough. And I'm thinking, this is the guy in the middle of this, you know, 50-odd major um, win streak, right? He's like one of the world's great athletes. I think from like 77 to 87, he won like 122 straight races, 107 of them finals. He was just an incredible, at the peak of track and field at that time. Indeed. So... um, but uh, you know what happened was in June of nineteen uh, eighty three, um, him and his wife invited me, and I had I had a girlfriend at the time who went on to become the food editor for the New York Times, by the way. Um, but um, he invited us over for dinner, so we're there, we're having a great time, and um, he he had an not an agent, but he had this guy who was part of his life helping with, um, with his planning and stuff. Not really as coach, but also a track and field coach. 
And um, so they were there and the whole evening was all about drugs and sports. And he said 90, Edwin told me 90% of track and field athletes, the ones you just saw at the world championships in Helsinki, they're all taking drugs. Wow. He was just telling me, they were just openly talking about all this. So you have to understand in 1983, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, uh, I'm an outlier. I'm a very slow learner and um, not a good journalist and or anything. So, but the, the one good thing I did was I called the LA office. I worked in Orange County. I called the yeah. LA office and told the assistant, Dwyer's assistant editor that Edwin had told me this. And then he said, can you write this? And I said, I can, but you have track and field writers. Now, back then, it was very territorial, and I, and right. I was just a little nothing, and I didn't want to step on anybody's shoulders. And I said, I will help in any way, um, and uh, nothing happened. And then let's fast forward to the Pan American Games in South America in August of 83, and mm-hmm. suddenly all these famous U.S. athletes are going home. And like nobody knows what's going on. So this editor says in a meeting, I'm not there, but in a meeting downtown at the LA office, hey, Elliot Allman called me in June and said, Edwin Moses said 90% of the athletes are on drugs. And Dwyer's like, what? So they called me again and said, can you reach Edwin? I said, he's in Germany, but I'll try to find him. I reached Edwin and Edwin said, there's a doctor in Germany by the name of Manfred Donica. And he's got mm-hmm. a, a gas chromograph machine and they've learned to calibrate it to catch the, the basic anabolic steroids. Because back then they couldn't catch it. So they took Winsterol, they took all the regular oil-based right. drugs um, that are right. easily detectable nowadays. Anyway, he brought the machine to the Pan American Games and that's why people, the word got out. So people said, crap, I'm on drugs. You know, as this was everybody. And um, they, they said, I, I don't want to be tested. I'm going home. The next morning in Caracas, Manfred Donica held a news conference. Here's my machine. Here's what I'm doing. I can catch these guys. So the wow. next day, the phone rings and it's Dwyer. And it's like sports the editor. sports editor. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell do you know? And the, the, what can you do for us here? And I'm like, Bleh. And uh, so I made some contacts, but at the same time, we had just hired Julie Cart in the Orange County edition. Mm-hmm. And right, great reporter. I yep. knew Julie's uh, background as a great discus thrower. She was, um, mm-hmm. she was a pet, just close to being an Olympian. And um, after deadline of dealing with high school stuff that we were doing, um, I went over to her desk. She was still at the office. And I said, hey, you know, I've got all this stuff. I just told her what I knew. And then what I knew was nothing. She knew everything. She knew where all the skeletons were. And, um, right. and I, so I, um, at that point, I just, I waited for Randy Harvey, the, the chief Olympic writer, to come back from Caracas. And mm-hmm. I, um, I messaged him. I didn't really know him, but I, I you know, we kind of knew each other. And to Randy's credit, you know, 
Julie and I are nobodies. And he invited us up for lunch and to listen. And after he heard from Julie, he marched us into Dwyer's office. And, and we just let Julie talk. And then Dwyer just said, carte blanche, go where you need to go in the world. Just go, go get this story, do whatever you need to do. And that set us on a path of going to Mexico. We bought, we bought steroids in Tijuana. Wait a minute. You purchased yeah, them in Tijuana? Yeah, because we, we, <laughs> we, we wanted to replicate what the athletes were doing. And so there I am, and I could barely speak Spanish then, and they're having me try to ask. And, the, and we had, our photographer is a former football player, Mark Boster, he, and he was, my, he was my, high, my college photographer too. So he's a big guy. And mm-hmm. anyway, the, the, cash, the, the, the kid behind the, the cash register, he said, he said to us, you athletes better be careful. You're going to get caught. And it's like, oh, this isn't the first athlete that you've sold drugs to? No. So um, that led us, that was a great story that Randy wrote, by the way, going across the border. Um, I guess I have to say it. We took illegal drugs across the border just to see what it was like and hope not get, hopefully we didn't get caught and we didn't, but um, just that feeling of what it was like. And anyway, that, that went on. Um, Edwin so changed my life. Right. I mean, he trusted you as a young reporter because you showed interest in coming out and, you know, being there while he's training alone. And he, you grew a working relationship to the point where he, he shed light on something that hadn't really been exposed to that point, you know, not very much, not at least in the U.S. And I think that says a lot about, you know, building relationships, the way you were able to do that with Edwin. It was, it was really cool, Todd. There was one point in which we wrote about some drugs and the chief testing officer for the 1984 Olympics who ran the UCLA lab, his name is Don Catlin, the super mm-hmm. famous drug um, drug tester, he, uh, he called me one day, first time I met him to start a relationship with him. He called me and said, hey, I saw that you guys wrote about this drug. Where did, where did you find it? I said, the Olympics are less than a year away. You don't know about this drug? And he goes, where did you guys find that, those drugs? And I said, can <laughs> we, you know, can I come down and meet you and have a conversation? So that started a relationship with him. Um, and I was more than willing in that case. I think it was not against, not unethical to have, you know, like, okay, well, look, it's, it's pretty public. You can find these drugs and here's where you need to look. Right, right. Well, this led down, you know, down a path of just great investigative work by you and the Times, but, but really by you throughout your career in so many different sports. And I think like in 1990, you obtained documents that showed that many of the American track and field athletes had tested positive, but the Athletics Congress, which is now USA Track and Field, they were covering it up. And that was a huge bombshell of a story. And it really led, you know, eventually to the United States Olympic Committee, you know, forming the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And um, so it really started to change the sport. But I have to tell you one thing about the documents, okay? Do you mind? No, we like to hear about documents. Give it up. So uh, (laughs) anyway, I don't want to say who the source is, but um, what happened was Randy and Julie were at the, uh, in Italy covering the World Cup, soccer World Cup. 
And so I was there and um, a friend of mine was trying to get an interview with my source for a feature. And um, a very, very close friend of mine who I had hired and brought into the LA Times. And Mm -hmm. so I said, oh, um, you know, gosh, let me help you. And so I called the source who was just sitting there waiting for me to call and said, I'm so glad you called. You need to come see me right away and, and handed me those, the documents that you're referring to that were, were really, mm-hmm. um, really important. Um, it, that was going to come out. Um, I think uh, another source wanted, wanted to give it to Julie Cart. And um, mm-hmm. actually, that was just a weird thing. I don't know the, all of it, but she seemed to be mad that I had them. And, uh, well, this is very Woodward and Bernstein-like. We have a Nixon theme running throughout this episode. Were you in the parking garage when you got the documents? <laughs> I, um, not, a, not a dark parking garage like that, but yes, it was a, <laughs> it was a handoff. It was a handoff. Well, you exposed a lot of the dark crevices of sports and you know, really brought a lot of help. You and other reporters of your ilk really brought a lot of positive change to the world of sports in that regard. So you get involved in like the Balco uh, coverage and this other drug stuff. And here it is, track and field. And I fast forward to the 2004 Athens. And you, at this point, had a pretty interesting working relationship with Marion Jones. She was a star athlete at the uh, Sydney Games in 2000, won five medals. And now here you are in Athens, and she was on the 4x100 relay team. I remember this, this bad exchange that Jones and Lauren Williams had, and it meant that she was not going to medal. So she had gone from being the star to all of a sudden not meddling. And there you are in a mixed zone of reporters after the race. Um, by the way, can you, can you describe what a mixed zone is like? I, can anybody describe it? It's it's the it's the um, it's the one thing the public never sees. Well, um, the Olympics uh, have set up these uh, areas in which the athletes have to pass through after their competition, and it's a it's like mm-hmm. being in uh, you know we're cattle, so we're we're in this little corral, if you will, fenced off area. You know it well because you were there, and um, the different country reporters are always wanting the same athletes. They want their own country athletes. So they, they band together. And, and with the U.S., it can be 20 people deep. And, um, right. It's a total zoo. Yeah, yeah it's a total really zoo. And Athens was, was so bad that the Washington, a Washington Post reporter wrote a whole story about the Athens track and field mix zone. You know, people, Europeans, I don't not to disparage anybody, but people have different ideas about when to take showers or taking showers every day. Oh, yeah. There was a whole strategy about whether or not to bathe before you had to dive into the mix zone because it might create some space for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, in the Athens mix zone, Todd, um, all the the top track and field writers, Sports Illustrated, New York Times, LA Times, all of those guys and women, they all bunched together right at the mouth of the mix zone so they could grab the athletes right, right away. So I, I mm-hmm. walked in that day and I looked at that. It was 20 people deep and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not going to even hear. I said, screw it. I just, it was too hot. It was too smelly. I had had enough. <laughs> I was too tired to deal with it. So I walked right. down where there weren't anybody. I walked away from everybody and I was by myself. So back to Marion Jones, she was really upset 
this was her last chance to meddle in Athens, and she didn't. Right. With with the with the exchange, poor exchange. So I didn't see this, but she apparently blew past the U.S. contingent, that twenty person deep um, group at the top of the mix zone, and. Um, so she's walking along, and I see her. And as you pointed out, uh, my relationship with her was really bad. Um, All right, well, tell us how bad. How bad was well, it? Well, I, I found a number to, um, uh, to reach them to talk about drugs um, because we had a lot of stuff on them. And mm-hmm. um, I can't, it, you know, this is a family-oriented uh, show, and I can't use all... Not, uh, wait, wait, not, not really. <laughs> well, she said every bad word you can think of about me, like, you know, just, be, just because I called. And she, she, she had known the stories I was writing because, you know, I'd heard all the stuff from the mastermind of Balco, and we had, you know, mm-hmm. we'd written a lot. And so she didn't like you at no, all? No, she, she didn't okay. like me at all. She would have nothing to do with me. And... And there she is, and I'm standing there looking like, what is she doing? She's walking toward me, Todd, in the mix zone. She sees me and walks toward me. And the only thing I can think of is she recognized my face as somebody, but didn't realize this is the asshole Elliot Allman. <laughs> so she came up and I said, you know, I, I, I didn't say who I was, but you can see on my credential, you've worn the credentials, the, the picture and name. Um, I just said, gosh, Mary, and I, I'm so sorry. Um, what happened? Just, you know, how are you, what's your emotions about that? This was your last chance for a medal. And, and she had mm-hmm. calmed down at that point. And so she told me, and then we went through the exchange um, she wasn't pointing fingers. She was gracious. She was the old Marion, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody, this is the way the mix zone works. And you know it well, but for those who don't, it's a rumor mill in there. So somebody saw that Marion talked to me and the rumor was just like wildfire, right? And I made a decision that Marion just used me to tell what she wanted to tell everybody. So I'll just share this. Like a pool yeah, reporter. Yeah, like a pool reporter. Right. And um, I mean, there's one one reporter at a very big newspaper that was practically crying. And I'm just told the person, um, don't worry, I'm gonna I'll transcribe it, give you the transcription. And and that person said, Just can I listen to the tape right now? And I said, I said, Yes, you can. Here it is. Don't do not go anywhere. <laughs> A little pressure and stress swirling yeah. around in that mix zone besides the body yeah. odor. Anyway, so uh, that that's how that thing went. And um, I guess other people, well, I was told that most people would have never done that and said, too bad for you guys. I got this and I'm, and that's me. Um, but I, but the European press, um, I, who are friends of mine, um, and I knew well because of the Balco story, they had done features on me in Le Monde and things like that. And um, so I helped them, and you know that came back to really help me. They they had stuff for a big story I was doing that they introduced mm-hmm. me to everybody, and uh, I got in. So it it came back to you know benefit my readers. So Marion Jones, who had gone from screaming every nasty word you can think of at you 
walks over and ends up talking to you, do you really think she didn't know who you were? You really ask great questions. I, and I hate to say, I hate when people say that on radio. That's a good question. But um, gosh, that's, I, Todd, I'll, I, I won't know. I'll never know. I just, I just won't know. Uh, so uh, my theory is that she recognized my face and said, oh, there's an American reporter mm-hmm. and had calmed down enough to come over to talk. But somebody that sophisticated with the media Mm-hmm. Right. Was. That, so your question is really perceptive because she should have known, right? I, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I can't explain it. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Well, things can get pretty crazy in that mix zone, and they can get crazy when you're covering um, international sporting events far from home. I mean, you covered 14 Olympics, uh, the Tour de France. You, you, you know, you've been out on the front lines far, far from the home base. And it can get crazy on deadline, too. And I think there was a story back in the Nagano Winter Olympics that I really always found humorous. And that involves the uh, women's figure skating final. Uh, Michelle Kwan was the big favorite to win that night. And I think a day or two before, you had kind of an inkling that this other skater, Tara Lipinski, might be able to pull an upset. Can you tell us a little bit about why you thought that Lipinski might win? Well, it's I, this was my first time covering figure skating in a 1998 Olympics in Nagano. So I didn't know mm-hmm. anything. And <laughs> anyway, um, so there's a, there's a real... Um, cartel of uh, Olympic figure skating writers. And um, they had, uh, they had cornered uh, Michelle Kwan's dad the day before. um, And so other reporters couldn't get to him and Michelle was holed up in a hotel. And so I just, Mm -hmm. this was just survival for me, Todd. I I know other reporters were grumbling and mad at, mad at that, those, those reporters, but you know what? They, they earned their stripes they 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 exactly, covered world right, champ right they earned the access yeah. that they were getting so yes. i didn't begrudge them and they're, plus they're really good friends of mine for the most part so i just as survival tara, tara lipinski was making herself available and so i decided i could see like well you know she's here's the kid she's really loose and talking to the media and michelle is Mm-hmm. Um, squirreled away and maybe she's tight she seems tight like seems weird that she's not being her normal self because she's the nicest person in the world if you know if you know Michelle she's mm-hmm. amazing and um, and then I so I I just had my normal interview with with Tara at the press conference and then a lot of Q&A after 
And then I went back to write my right. story in the satellite press trailer. And I'm working on my story. And all of a sudden I see T- Tara's like cruising through and like looking and she's all excited. Like, oh my God, they're writing stories. And I called her over and said, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing about you right now. And she was like all excited, <laughs> you know, 14 year old kid. And um, right, yeah, so then I, after she left, I added that into my story. And um, then the next, uh, that night, the next night I had written my, uh, let me back up and see. I worked for the Seattle Times. We were still at that time. We yes, were we right. were still a PM newspaper, so we could get results in Japan in the paper. And before mm. it goes on, the yeah. time difference. The time difference worked. Yeah. In your so before paper, it would yes. be on TV or anything, um, but figure skating mm. ended. Um, I had. I think when it ended, I had fifteen minutes. I think that was for the first edition. I had something like 15 minutes. I was sitting next to the reporter from the Alaska Anchorage paper, and I was paralyzed for like, I don't know how long, but not long. But after Lipinski skated last, and she, it was clear that, oh my God, she just outskated Quan. And then the judges' scores come up. And I looked at this woman and I said, did that just happen? And she said, yes. And then I snapped too, and I got my butt out of the out of the arena, and I was running to um, rewrite my story completely. Um, and to, running, running to the to press, the press room, room right? and it's yeah. freezing rain outside, and I see this woman run by me in the pitch black, and all of a sudden I realize that's Rosalind Summers from Edmonds, Washington, local for the Seattle Times, and figure, figure skater, skater who won the silver medal. Um, Mm-hmm. And I, so I turned around and screamed and said, Rosalind. And she stopped, thank God. And she said, I've got to go on air. And I said, it's Elliot Almond at the Seattle Times. You have to talk to me right now. And hell yeah. And she came over <laughs> in the middle of the rain and then gave me this great story that she knew Tara and had talked to her. Tara sought her advice. So here was this really good quote. I had no quotes or anything, but here I get this quote. So I go in and I write as fast as I can and uh, for that first edition, and, and we have a full story. And, it, and Knight Ritter was able to put that out on the wire. And some papers just went with my story, which was crazy, hmm. because the other reporters had about 10 hours before their deadline. You had about yeah. 15 minutes. <laughs> 15 minutes, right? But you know what? You did all the pre-work, right? I mean, you did the homework. You you were observant about the competitors before the competition itself. You had a working relationship uh, with Rosalind. And, you know, fate has it that you run into her. And then because of that working relationship, it led to a quote. So it all become, all comes together because of the work that you did beforehand. The same way it did with uh, Edwin Moses. You know, it it doesn't always happen just in the moment. It, you know, I think for good sports writing, reporting, and writing, uh, the best ones did it before the deadline. And and I think that's a great example. You mentioned Todd Marinovich and um, the story you did with him, and uh, you went surfing with him. And this is you know after he's this is after he's out of USC and he's out of the NFL, right? Yeah. The, the quarterback. Uh, but that story and relationship that you built with Todd, that led to another story, right? Yeah, that, that was, Todd, this is really kind of just a crazy thing. And I, I, I love how you frame it with the theme because um, 
I, I always tell people I just was lucky. I don't know what I'm doing, but um, Todd Todd left the Raiders and he disappeared. And we thought, well, where the heck is he? What's he doing? It'd be a good story. It's been a year. Nobody's heard from him. So um, because of my relationship with him, um, we both lived in Newport Beach and we both surfed. And we, so we had these other things in common mm-hmm. that we could talk about. Um, anyway, finally, um, through his family, I was able to track him down. And, and, and oh, my God, he told me these great surfing stories, which I led my my thing with. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> but it was it, we really had a great time. And, and he was a Grateful Dead fanatic so he was following the grateful dead and mm. um so i wrote this story and at the for the la times and this guy called me and said introduced himself and said that he was an agent or something and getting into the agency and if todd wants to get back into football he'd love to help him do it and i said oh you know i mm. can't there's no way i can give you todd's number but if you give me your number um, I will get it to his family. And um, mm-hmm. lo and behold, um, the sister's husband uh, called that guy back and they, they chatted. And um, I don't know, maybe a year later, Todd, I, 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 two years, I don't know. I, this agent calls me and says, hey, do you remember me? Um, you helped me with Todd Marinovich. And I, I've never forgotten mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I just, hmm. and I go, God, I didn't do anything. You know, I, I believe that that's, you know, I was facilitated. If that could help both sides and that's great, but I didn't do anything. And he said, I really want to take you to right. lunch. Now I lived in Newport beach. If you go anywhere in LA, you, you lose a day, you know, it just that, you literally, literally, because of the traffic and everything. So I really didn't want to do this. And he kept bugging me. And he promised to take me to California Pizza Kitchen, which was a new thing and a big deal out on the west side. So this whole day was great. So I, I just went. He just wanted to meet me and thank, basically thank me. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I had a mm-hmm. free day. And he took me by... Um, uh, the Browns where O.J. Simpson and, you know, the, the murders happened. I'd never been by there. So he, mm. he, his office was near there. And I mentioned I had never been there. So he drove me by that. So I got to see that. Yeah. Gruesome and then we, okay, we went I to California you. Pizza Kitchen. And we, we each paid separately, by the way. I wasn't getting a free meal. Um, mm-hmm. And then the day's getting late. And I still have to get to the office and through L.A. And he said, hey, um, this was a great day. It was so fun. He goes, can you, uh, can you come up to the office? I'm like, no, dude, I can't. I got I to gotta get to my office. You know, I have to show up to work at some right. point. And he goes, oh, I want to give you something. And I roll my eyes. I go into his office, and he hands me that year's Wonderlick test that the NFL used with all the draftees. It had everything. It had their names. It had everything you could want to know about them. And he goes, thank you for just being who you are. And he handed me this. He goes, I made a copy of it for you, and this is yours. All right. Now we're talking. Yeah, now more, we got more documents. documents. So I, yes. And yet again, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's like the accidental journalist. I shouldn't even be a journalist. And I, so I, I bring it in. Oh. I bring it in to John Sherva. And 
my editor, and he says, well, Bill Pulaski is the NFL writer. You have to give it to him. And I thought, well, that's, wait a second. This is a big story, and there's no story if not for me. That's not what. I just, who am I, chop liver? Right. You've grown from the, from the early days yeah. of your track experience. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I do what he says. And to, to Bill Plasky's credit, I don't know how well you know Bill, or you definitely will have him on your show sometime. He's amazing. Um, Bill, Bill saw this. He realized how important it was. And he called me and said, uh, L, L, L. That's how he always talks. He goes, oh, my God, this, this is great. Good stuff, good stuff. Hey, look, we, we need to do this together. And um, so we put together uh, a three or four page Sorry, three or four story, one day series. So we did all the reporting, but it all ran one day. And um, mm-hmm. Bill was great. He was the lead writer, as he should be. And um, we all just we marshaled everything we had, and then and then and then Sherva liked the idea of us working together. And then and then he said, "Hey, right. you guys have to take the Wonderlick test, and we're going to put your scores in too." Yes. I'm like, holy crap, I don't like tests. <laughs> I didn't do well on the SAT. So, um, so Sherva took it too, and the three of us took it. All right, give us the scores. Well, let me just put it this way. One of my cousins, who's a lawyer now, mm-hmm. he, he, uh, he sent me a note and said, you've embarrassed the family. <laughs> yeah, but... Well, that that story about the Wonderlick, you know, won an APSC uh, News Award, and again, I think it shows the type of uh, reporter that you have been throughout your career. The fact that you can build relationships with people, people are willing to trust you and tell you things and give you documents, and you did it for so many great years. You know, I think twenty two years at the LA Times, twenty three at the San Jose Mercury News, a couple at Seattle, and. And now you're out as an outdoor columnist at the uh, Cascadia Daily News. And then I know how much you love uh, the outdoors. And we talked about surfing, but you're, you're always out on great hikes and the mountains. And your Instagram feed is a must, must follow. Please do it. It'll make you feel better about your life if you see Elliot up in the mountains. And, and you're really participating in enterprising community journalism, you know, the you know, the type of journalism that really is going to move forward as the business continues to evolve. But that love of the outdoors has one last thing I want to ask you about, and that is involves mountain climbing, specifically Alex Honold, the famous American climber who did El Capitan, first one to free solo it in that movie, Free Solo, El Capitan at Yosemite National Park, which is like 3,000 feet of granite. Mm-hmm. You got to know this guy over the years, and there was a story about another climber who had fallen, but she survived, and you knew how to get a hold of Alex. Well, what happened was Emily Harrington was doing a, a first for a female climber, and Alex was assisting her. The, the good climbers help each other, and um, he was mm-hmm. involved in the rescue. And uh, what happened was I was trying to get Emily to tell the story, and but her people were, weren't interested in the little San Jose Mercury news. It turns out they were shopping it around to the New York Times, and then she was on Good Morning America, mm. blah blah blah. So again, yeah. as a journalist, like, well, I need to get somebody to talk about this, and right. and I thinking I'm just going to call Alex because I have a cell. So right. um, so I get him, 
and Alex is like, oh, hey, you know, Elliot, okay. And he's kind of pausing and stuff. And I, so finally I said, oh, is this, am I get, catching you at a bad time? And he says, well, Sonny and I are climbing right now. So long pause, right? Yes. Alex, Alex, are you, are you, free, are you free soloing? Or are you roped up? And he goes, no, no, I'm always roped with Sonny. I go, where are you climbing? And so he tells me where they're climbing. And uh, anyway, he didn't want to stay on the phone, but he, he gave me the whole story about the rescue and what it meant and everything. So, so he did an interview while he did he's an interview on the wall. roped up on a wall. Yeah, out, out, <laughs> out on a mountain. Yes, yes. And, um, and people, um, a lot of people who are interested in that community, that story still gets calls up. It, it's for five years, I don't matter, seven years. That story, people are always finding that story because it was the only, it was the only first, well, it was the first like real detailed account of what happened. And, and people like, mm-hmm. climbing community loves details on stuff like that. So, um, so thank God for Alex. He's, he's one of the most amazing athletes that I've ever got to um, interview and spend time with. What is he like? He's, he's just honest. He's, he's, uh, he's self-reflective. He's humble. He, he, he has really, for the kind of stuff he does, he doesn't have a big ego. He tries to see other people's side when uh, he's received a lot of criticism and he, and he doesn't just get defensive ever. He, he tries to hear it and think about it and um, be supportive and, and say, you know what, they're probably right. Hmm. Um, I just haven't met many people like him, Todd. He seems to have no filter in terms of, he's just going to tell you, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, the fact that you mentioned that he's honest and he's uh, willing to share things with you and he doesn't have an ego, it sounds a lot like you, Elliot. Oh, yeah, we're, we're the same. I, you, uh, I'll be on uh, El Cap climbing any day now. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> well, gosh. I would not be surprised by that. I mean, you are willing to go anywhere for a story, and uh, that's really what made you such a great and respected journalist and, and really one of the great kind souls in our business. There's a lot of sharks out there, personality-wise, but uh, Elliot, you were always a guy that I know I could turn to if I needed a a dose of humanity in the main press room or the mix zone. So I thank you for your friendship over the years, Elliot. And, and I really thank you for being willing to uh, come in from the great outdoors and join us here at Press Box Access. Gosh, Todd, I, I have to say what you just said. I mean, I don't want to cry. So, but thank you so much. And being, that is what I cared more about trying to do than like winning a Pulitzer Prize. That means more to me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Elliot. And uh, I wish you the best in all your future adventures. And I will be following you on Instagram and reading, too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. 
It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>